Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Good morning. So if you're a Christian, this is what you believe. You believe that there is a good and gracious, loving creator who has always existed. He's outside of time. There was never a time that God was not. And in an overflow of his gracious goodness, he created all things that are. He created all of the universes that exist, all the galaxies, every star, every planet, every human being, every molecule he ordered and he set them in motion according to his great and glorious plan. And as the pinnacle of his creation in his image, he created mankind, you and me, every person that has ever lived. And in his mysterious providence, knowing that that creation would thumb their noses at his goodness, he created them anyway. And before that creation was able to rebel against him, knowing that that creation would rebel against him, he, before the foundations of the earth, set forth a plan to send himself in the form of his son, Jesus, to become a man like his creation, but fully God, with all the power of all of the Godhead still his, and then to become a man, to literally humble himself in the greatest act of humility ever, and to walk amongst his creation, to feel the temptations of his creation, to even allow himself to be mocked, and scorned, and ultimately killed by his feeble, weak, rebellious, arrogant creation. And then, he by his great power causes God the Son to come back from the dead, to roll away the tomb and to rise again in victory over human rebellion and death and arrogance and pride, to ascend to heaven where God the Son sits even now commanding all men everywhere to repent as an advocate for the continuing rebellion and arrogance of the pinnacle of His creation. And He deemed fit before time began to in this strange and incomprehensible act of humility in the cross to save the world through not his might and his power but through the willing response of repentance and trust in what he did on the cross through his son Jesus in his death and his burial and his resurrections. Friends, let's be honest now. If you're a Christian, that's what you believe. And, and let's, let's just own up to the fact that that is foolish. That's foolish. That, according to the wisdom of this world, that is foolish. 
And if you are not yet a believer in Jesus or you are a skeptic or you are coming in here and you have spent most of your life internally scoffing Christianity because it doesn't seem to make much sense according to the wisdom of the world, you are right. I am not going to try and prove to you today a better way to live or some tips on practical wisdom. Today we are going to talk about the foolishness and thus power and wisdom of God in the cross of Jesus Christ. I always feel very, very inadequate uh, to open the Bible and to preach to you, but uh, today I am feeling particularly inadequate uh, to to speak to you on these things. And so uh, I'm going to read the scripture and then I'm going to pray. And uh, I need you to not just sit there. I need you to pray for me because today the scriptures that we will read and consider 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 31 are one of the uh, passages of the Bible that is an absolute Himalaya of the scriptures. Well, let me read and let's pray and let's get down to it. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 through 31. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Well, let's pray. I need the help of the Holy Spirit today to think about and speak about these things. Father, we come to you with a tremendous humility and gratitude for your scriptures, in particular for this beautiful, rugged letter of 1 Corinthians. Lord, we are so like the Corinthian church. We are very, very gifted and very filled with your grace, but we are carnal, selfish, arrogant people. 
we desperately need today to be humbled. In, in a strange way, it's so counterintuitive to us, but the best thing for us today, Lord, would be to, make, to be brought low so that Jesus in our eyes would be made high. Lord, I know that I am uh, completely uh, unable to think about these things. My life is full of hypocrisy and pride and arrogance and self-sufficiency. And so I desperately need you to work in spite of me. I, I am a crooked stick. I confess that, but you, in your grace and kindness, you draw straight lines with crooked sticks. And so, Lord, today as we talk about the foolishness of the cross, which is the power and wisdom of God, and as we lay that on top of the arrogance of human wisdom, I do pray that today you would make Jesus clearer to us. And for the Christians that are in this room that are just in a rut of cultural, tired, selfish, self-help Christianity, that you would rouse us and that you would stir our affections for Jesus and that we would see you and that we would be humbled and that we would be brought low and that, God, you would cause us to see and savor Jesus today so that we would be more of a fragrance for Christ in our lives, which would then draw more people to you. And God, if there are unbelievers in this room, people that have not yet repented and trusted in Jesus and turned to him and away from idols... God, I pray that you would cause them, as Reynolds read from 1 Peter, that you would cause them to be born again by the living and abiding Word of God. And I pray ultimately today that Jesus would be exalted, that He would speak clearly to each person by your Holy Spirit, and that we would see you and savor you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're working our way through 1 Corinthians. We're at the end of chapter 1 here today. And just as a little background, if you haven't been here the last couple of weeks, Paul, on his missionary journey, uh, plants the church in Corinth in Acts chapter 18. We read about a few weeks ago. This was a, a really a strategic place to plant a church. They were kind of a, a little bit of a port city. They were about eight miles off the coast there, and there was much trade. They were on a, on a sort of an inlet between the Greece mainland and Peloponnesian islands. And so there was lots of trade that would come to this little little isthmus, and uh, as a result, there was all sorts of educated people there, scholars and people that were involved in philosophy, and there was a lot of education in this particular city. There was a lot of commerce in this particular city, and so it was kind of a crossroads of human culture. It was a great place to plant a church, and so Paul planted this church, and then he goes on to Ephesus. He actually stayed in Corinth for 18 months, which was unusually long for him. And then he goes on to Ephesus, and now he begins to receive reports back from some of his ministry associates and Chloe's household, as we read, read last week, that there's dissension in the church, there's factions rising up in the church, there's people that are following particular charismatic leaders, there's people, as we'll read, that are engaging in all sorts of immorality, not that Christians don't still sin, but they were sort of flaunting their their immorality and uh, what they deemed to be God's grace, even though they were living any way that they could, and Paul is now writing this letter to correct the carnality of the Corinthians. And he begins really stunningly by thanking God for these, these crazy Christians, for these carnal, selfish Christians. And that's what he does in the first nine verses of chapter 1. And then through the rest of chapter 1, he starts to talk about the divisions of the church. And before he gets further into his correction of the Corinthian church, we see him hold out Jesus 
and the way of the cross against the seeming self-sufficiency of the Corinthian church. Here was the kind of the culture of the Corinthian church. And this is very much like our culture. The Corinthians were educated, sophisticated people. They had they had kind of the equivalent of what we would consider sort of technological advancements and, and human advancement and education. And so they were leaning on those things. And they were sort of, uh, they had initially received Paul's gospel about Jesus, but then they they kind of developed this culture where they were letting that gospel simply be another alternative in a better way to live your life. And so they were kind of preaching Christianity. The message of Jesus is sort of like life 2.0, that this is just another way. In fact, it's probably the better way, but it's just another way that you can improve your life. And Paul comes to smash that sort of consumeristic self-improvement cultural Christianity that existed in Corinth and that exists in our life and in our culture in our city today. And so he begins by saying in verse 18, he just starts off. He just lowers the boom on him. He's saying, hey, the word of the cross, the message of the cross is folly. It is ridiculousness to people that are perishing, to those that don't believe in Jesus. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The point that I want to make here before we begin, the first point, I've got four of them. We're just going to work our way through them. Point number one is that you need to know this. If you are a biblical Christian, if you are, if you are truly following Christ, this is, this is the truth that you need to grab a hold of. And that is that the cross divides people into those who are, it divides all people into those who are perishing and those who are being saved. Listen, we live in the land of nominal Christianity where people just sort of believe in justification by church affiliation. Like I just, well, I grew up going to First Methodist or Second Baptist or Third Presbyterian or Fourth Pentecostal or Fifth Non-Denominational. And so we just sort of assume that if a guy just sort of gives mental agreement to the general tenets of Christianity or that if your grandma was, you know, the kept the nursery, if your daddy helped build the church, if you just get a bulletin from somewhere, if some church just still has you on their mailing list and you occasionally get their bulletin and go to their Christmas Eve service, then certainly, you know, I mean, you kind of agree with Christianity. You're kind of in. But, but what Paul is saying is here is that the cross divides all people, not into just kind of people that grow up in the Bible, but into two groups, those that are perishing and those that are being saved. And so that applies to everybody everywhere. It applies to people that grow up in the Middle East. It applies to people that were born in Siberia. And it applies to people that are in this room right now. This room, if we could divide the house, we won't, but if we could divide the house, there are only two options. There are people in this room who, who are either, have either believed in Jesus, they have trusted in Him for the forgiveness of their sins, and they have a new heart. God has regenerated them. He has made them alive. Or you are still dead in your sins. You are perishing. You are, and this is an extremely unpopular thing for preachers to say today because everybody wants preachers to tickle their ears and make them feel good. I mean, God forbid that we actually talk about hell, but there, if, you, if you are not a Christian, if you have not trusted in Jesus, you are perishing, you are on your way to eternal separation forever from God. That is the only two potential options for everybody in this room and in the world. And Paul starts off with that stark clarity to rattle the Corinthians out of their cultural Christianity. The cross divides all people into those who are perishing and to those who are being saved. 
What if you realize that you're perishing? What if by God's kindness right now he were to just by his Holy Spirit open up your heart and you were to right now just sort of realize, hey, I don't know if I'm certain that I'm a Christian. I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm one of those that are perishing. What can you do? Well, the clear answer is not just to do some work. But the biblical answer is that you should turn from your sin, that you should trust in what Jesus did on the cross. This is called repentance and faith. And that you should commit yourself to his people. This is the spectacular grace and the scandal of Christianity is, and this is what we're going to get into, this is the folly of the cross. See, all of us are bent towards doing something to making ourselves right with God, and the folly of Christianity is that there's nothing you can do. That Christ did it all on the cross. This is counterintuitive. If I want to uh, get back into right standing with somebody in a human relationship that I'm in, like let's say, for example, this never happens. Let's say just for example, I am sort of grumpy and short with my wife. Let's just say, let's just say, never, it rarely happens. But when that happens, um, theoretically, and, and then we weather that moment of my sort of fallenness and sin, then isn't it sort of natural for me to sort of then compensate and try and you know, take out the trash or you know, change a couple diapers or vacuum or make a meal slash Pop-Tarts for the kids or something like that to try and kind of make up for? That's our natural tendency is to sort of get into religion mode, workspace righteousness. But the message of the cross, the word of the cross is this, is that you are dead, that there's nothing you can do to save yourself. There's no work you can do. There's no amount of good works that you can accomplish. There's, there's not enough church involvement that you can get in. There's not enough Bible that you can read. You're dead. You're dead. You, nothing that you can do, whether you are a relatively moralistic American Christian or whether you are a Middle East terrorist plotting some attack. All of us, we are all fallen. And that there's no amount of human goodness that can make us right before God. And listen, you may be thinking right now, I'm a Christian, I've heard this. No, you need to hear this again and again. Because our bent, our natural default position is to go back to making ourselves right again or feeling good about ourselves by works. And the bazooka of Paul in this situation is to remind the Corinthians and tell them that, that, that human effort is folly as far as making yourself right with God and that's foolish according to our natural bent and so the message of the cross is that you are dead in your trespasses and that there's nothing that you can do that can save yourself you're dead and that in response to our rebellion and subsequent spiritual death God sends Christ on the cross who lives a perfect life who accrues who builds up righteousness for us, and then he lays down his life on the cross and becomes a sacrifice. He becomes, he becomes a satisfying sacrifice for our sin on the cross, and he rises again in victory. And now those who trust completely, who put faith in what Jesus did on the cross as the sole basis for our right standing with God, are those that are born again that are made right with God. And that alone, that alone makes you right with God. That's what the message of the cross is. And that cuts against our pride, does it not? It cuts 
against our, cry, our pride. And Paul is saying right now that everybody is one of those two people. And so if you are perishing right now, look, do you even realize that? Here's the good news. If you're realizing that, I think that's evidence that the Holy Spirit is causing your heart to be drawn to Christ and giving you new life. If you are even realizing that you may not be a Christian right now, oh, you should leap with joy because I believe that is evidence that you are like, you're in, God's making you alive. You're, you're passing through the birth canal of, of spiritual life. And so all you need to do right now is you need to trust. You need to turn towards Jesus. Don't trust in yourself. Don't compare yourself to the poor schlep that you came with that's next to you. Thank God that Christ has provided a way and that the message of the cross, the work of Jesus and his death, burial and resurrection is what makes us right. If you're perishing today, turn and trust in Jesus. Put all of your faith in him. You can do that. You don't need to fill out a card. You don't need to raise your hand or repeat a prayer right now. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. Turn from trust in yourself and trust in Christ. Well, he keeps going in verse 20. It says, where's the one who wise? Where's the one who is wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? So there was these, there was these uh, Greek uh, rhetorical sophists is what they were called. They were kind of like professional speakers who would come and they would, they would uh, preach their system, whatever it was, whether it was some Greek philosophical system. In this particular case, these guys had adopted Christianity and so they're now trying to lay the message of Christianity into um, uh, sort of their philosophical worldview. And whenever you do that, you rob the cross of its power. When you try and make Christianity into a way... This is why why Christian TV is so full of junk. Because what sells is that trying to preach this message where Christianity is kind of a way to make yourself a little bit more prosperous, a little bit more healthy, or a little bit more blessed, or a little bit more earthly effective. That never works because what it does is it turns Christ and it turns the message of the Bible into a means of temporal, earthly self-improvement, which falls down every time. That's why the health and wealth gospel is no gospel at all. That's not to say that Christ doesn't improve you, but he improves you eternally. Not, he's not promising us blessings. And so these Greek philosophers in this particular situation in Corinth are trying to add Christianity into their philosophical system as a means of improvement, and it doesn't work. It becomes foolishness. Verse 21, he continues, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God. Now listen to this. Listen to verse 21. I need to read this slowly. This is important because it gives us a glimpse of a biblical view of God. Listen to this. For since, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. So let me just kind of rephrase this sentence a little bit to make it a little bit more kind of uh, understandable for us in how we might say it. What that's saying is, is that God's, God in his wisdom deemed to make human intelligence insufficient in coming to him. So let's read, read verse 21 kind of in sort of Brad's paraphrased version, which is completely insufficient, by the way. For since in the wisdom of God, he deemed to make earthly wisdom or human wisdom completely insufficient in coming to him, so it pleased him to save people through the folly of the simplicity of the cross. So this is an important glimpse into a biblical view of God. It was always God's plan 
to make human intelligence and human pride insufficient. So it's not like God is up in heaven and he's saying, oh, shucks, Adam and Eve bit the apple. It's not like he's up in heaven saying, oh, man, Israel did not repent that time. Oh, 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 you know, Americans are not focused on Jesus. They're turning the gospel into self up. Oh, no, what are we going to do? Jesus, you got a plan? No, that's not God in his wisdom determined to make it so that human wisdom is absolute folly. The implications of this are huge. It means that God, in order to display his greatness, determined to make human reasoning doomed to failure. Doomed to failure. Now let's keep going. Verse 22. For Jews demand signs. Greeks seek wisdom. The Jews were wanting some clear sign. Something even clearer than the resurrection, apparently, that Jesus uh, was their Messiah. I just want to make a brief point here that there's a tremendous amount of danger in demanding a sign from God because you put yourself in the position of authority. Have you ever said... Um, I know I've said this. I said this a lot when I was in college and wrapped in hypocrisy and sin. I said, God, if you will get me out of this this time, then I will never do that again. So it's kind of setting conditions on God. God, if you, if you, am I the only one? I got one guy nodding north and south. Am I the only one who's ever done that? You self-righteous bunch of sorry people. Come on, how... How many among us have not said, like, God, if you let me not get exposed this time, then I will never do that again. What we're really doing sort of in a subtle way is we're saying we're demanding a condition on God. We're like Jews who are seeking a sign. And Paul says that that is utter futility. Let's keep going, verse 23. But we preach Christ crucified. (laughs) We preach Christ crucified. There's five words there. We preach, but we preach Christ crucified. You know, in all humility, look, there's a lot of doctrine that we need to touch on here at Crosspoint. There's a lot of things that we need to flow out of the gospel here. There's a lot of things. Marriage and and managing your money well and how to raise kids and how to be uh, a good Christian in a hostile world. But do you realize that our really our only message is Christ crucified? That, that is all we have here. I remember a couple years into Crosspoint, um, somebody came to me when I was just kind of settling down on just the sufficiency of Christ and and uh, re- I believe kind of really getting, beginning to get my legs underneath me as a, as a young pastor preacher and, and settling on just, you know, I, I confess that when we started this church, I was just insecure and, and just kind of wanted people to come. And so my early first few years of preaching was just kind of grabbing stuff. Hopefully it would stick, you know, just kind of throwing spaghetti against the wall, hoping it would be helpful and people would stick around. And, and, and I was just, the Lord was beginning to press on my heart about just the idolatry of me just wanting the church to grow and just wanting to be helpful and kind of falling into that self-help gospel sort of subconsciously. 
And God kind of redirected me about a year, year and a half into Crosspoint to just talk about Jesus all the time. Just talk about Jesus. Just make Jesus great. Non-believers need to hear about Jesus. And Christians need to hear about Jesus. And here was the lie that I kind of bought into in the early part of my life as a Christian and as a pastor. Is that, well, Christians kind of accept the gospel as something they do, do at the beginning. And then they need to kind of move into other stuff. But that is not the truth. Christians need to hear the gospel. The way Christians grow is to remember the gospel. That's why Paul writes to Timothy and he says, remember Jesus Christ. Remember the gospel. Preach about these things. Talk about Jesus. And that's why Paul writes to the Corinthians who are caught up in all sorts of other junk. We preach Christ crucified. And I remember in the second year of the church, somebody came to me. They were kind of, I could tell they were sort of edging on the way out of of the church. It just kind of there less frequently. I could just sort of tell, listen, God gives pastors discernment. I can tell by the way you comport yourself, whether you're leaning forward or whether you're leaning backwards. I can tell. And uh, this person said to me, Brad, you know, I mean, it just kind of seems like you repeat yourself a lot. Like every, it's like every two or three Sundays, it's just kind of all about the cross. I mean, it's just the gospel. And I said, I said, I, I, I am sorry. I said, you, you, you are right. I, I am so sorry. You're right. Only two or three Sundays out of four, I preach the gospel. And I will do my best to preach the gospel four out of four Sundays. <laughs> That's all we got. We preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called. That is a humbling sentence. To those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. This brings us to point number two. Is that the cross bridges the gap between law and grace. It bridges the gap between human inability and God's power to save. It bridges the gap between religion and gospel. The cross bridges the gap between the law of God, the justice of God, the holiness of God, and the grace of God in actually bringing broken, sinful people like us to Himself. Listen, let me just summarize the whole Old Testament for you. You know the purpose of God in the Old Testament well, there's a couple things there that he's wanting to do. He's wanting to separate for himself a people called Israel through which he would bless to make them a blessing to all of the nations and by which he would display his glory to the nations. So the purpose of the Old Testament and specifically the Old Testament law is to for God to form his people around this law and to sort of to sort of etch out his people amongst all the other peoples of the earth so that he could bless all the peoples through these people. Also, you know, one of the purposes of the law is to kind of teach his people how to live. But you know, I think probably the the primary purpose of the Old Testament law is to shine light on human sin and cause failure. It's to shed light on our rebellion and to bring us to a place where we throw our hands up and say, I can't do it. In fact, this is what Paul writes in Galatians about the law. He says, of the Old Testament, of the law, of God's justice and God's requirements on humanity, it is given as a guardian or a tutor to bring us to Christ, not by bringing us 
because we can accomplish what God demands of us, but by bringing us to God because it frustrates us to such a point that we come weak and realizing that we are completely unable to do what God requires of us. And that's the purpose of the law. God gives His justice in the form of His law in the Old Testament so that we might raise up our hand and say, I can't do this. And the good news of the cross and the gospel is that Jesus did do it for us in our stead. That's the news of the cross. This is what Romans 8 says about what Jesus did for us. Romans 8 verse 3. For God has done with the law... Weakened by the flesh. That means that we were so jacked up, but we can't live right. We can't do it. Let me, let me, we're talking about law. None of you, some of you are connected like law, uh, Moses, Pentateuch. Uh, no, listen, this is what it means, young man. You cannot stop downloading porn on your own. This is what it means, rich Christian in Columbus, in Cross Point, who has a trust fund and houses and boats. It means you cannot be extravagantly generous on your own. You can't do it. This is what it means, young woman. It means that you can't keep yourself chaste and say no to the boy who wants to put his hands all over you on your own. You can't on your own meet God's requirement for you. None of us can. We fail. And the law shows us that we fail. That's what it was supposed to do. To bring us to the one, the only one, who didn't fail. And that's what Romans 8 says. Listen to this. For God has done what the law, weakened by flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. But completely perfect. We know that from Hebrews. Resisted temptation. Everything that we felt, he felt, but he, he endured it righteously. He sent his own son, like us in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. And so what that verse is saying is, and this is the scandal and the beauty of the cross and of the gospel. It's saying to the young man who can't stop downloading porn. It's saying to the rich trust fund Christian who's selfish and just self-absorbed it's saying to the young lady who can't who can't who's just dying for approval and on the edge of giving her heart away to some punk boy it's saying to all of us in this room who are doomed for failure and in of our own in of our own efforts it's saying to you that you are a lawbreaker and there's no hope for you but christ is the perfect righteous one and when you repent and believe in jesus his righteousness gets to be yours. It is transferred to you. He fulfilled the law for you. So the gospel is not that God said, ah, this wasn't working out. Ah, let's just kind of scrap this justice and righteousness thing and start off in Jesus, you know, do this thing and then rise again and it'll be neat and everybody... No, that's not the gospel. The gospel is not that God hinges or backs off on His requirement. The gospel is, is that Jesus fulfills it. He becomes perfect. He resists everything that we fall to. And when we repent and believe, we now receive His righteousness. This is what Martin Luther, the great reformer of the church, the Protestant Reformation in 1517 said, is the great exchange. Christ dies for our sin. So our failure, our breaking of the law, our continual weakness gets transferred to Christ. 
And his righteousness gets transferred to you. That's why if you're a Christian, you are no longer a porn downloader. You are no longer a girl who's taken off her clothes for some hairy-legged boy. You are no longer a selfish, trust-fund Christian. You now are the righteousness of Christ. So live like it. That's the gospel. And that's the message of Paul to the Corinthians. And it's the message of Paul to us today. The cross bridges the gap between law and grace. It bridges the gap between human failure and God's demand for holiness. So thank you very much. One guy agrees here. So if you read the Bible and you are constantly frustrated and feel like you can never live up to God's way, exactly. That's the point, friends. I believe that this is very likely evidence that God is drawing you to Christ. So trust in Christ's work, not in your own. And for those of you that think, well, I'll just trust in Christ's work, and now I'm covered for eternity, and I can kind of keep doing what I'm doing. Well, if that's your mindset, and that is the mindset of many, many Uh, people that think that they're Christians but aren't. If that's your mindset, I encourage you to read Romans 6. Because Romans 6 says that if you continue to just willfully sin, thumbing your nose at God, thinking that grace is just going to continue to abound on your behalf, you are very likely wrong and not actually born again. This is not to imply that Christians do not sin. But it is to imply that when God gives you a new heart, He makes you to be born again. Listen, you were dead to become a Christian means that you're born again. You have a new heart. Then what that new heart begins to do is it begins to want the things that Jesus wants. And so how do you know you're a Christian? Why? Because you raised your hand at a youth camp or some pastor had you fill out a card and repeat a prayer? No. Those things may be helpful in moving us along the continuum of God's grace, but you know you're a Christian if you begin to love and do the things that Jesus calls you to do. In perfection yet? No. That happens when we're glorified and we're before Christ. But you know you're a Christian because there starts to happen in your life love and fruit and a desire for the things that God desires. By the way, friends, as a little rabbit trail, that's why we really don't kind of do the traditional altar call type of thing here, where we do a a message at the end and we, we ask if people want to raise their hand and become Christians. Not to say that people don't get saved in a moment. You do get, I mean, just like you were physically born in a moment, you are spiritually born in a moment as well. But what happens in American Christianity is that they give people false senses of assurance because we slap a save tag on you just because you raised your hand in a group of a couple hundred people. That, that, that doesn't necessarily tell us anything, and it sends these little people off their way thinking, well, I raised my hand, I prayed a prayer, I'm saved. You may be or you may not be. This is how you know you're saved. Do you love Jesus? And are you moving towards Him in what your life is producing? And you say, well, Brad, that's kind of ambiguous. It takes a while to figure that out. Yes! That's the point! It takes a while to figure it out. Well, Brad, I've been a Christian for a long time. Are you causing me to doubt my salvation? Yes! I think we all need to occasionally doubt our salvation. I'll get some emails on this. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5 says, Examine yourself 
lest you be in the faith. I'm not talking about doubting your salvation into fear. Because if you are truly born again, I don't believe you can lose it. It's not yours to lose. But it means that we all in our life, whether we're preachers or whether we've been Christians for a long time, fall into false Gospels, we fall into self-righteousness, we fall into laziness, we fall into to, to the gospel, to, to the way that the Corinthians were living. We need to be reminded of the gospels to shake us out of our callousness. And so Paul writes to these people and he tells him that the cross bridges the gap between law and grace. Let me touch on something before we continue. Verse 24 says, but to those who are called... Just the very structure of that sentence implies that there is a those that are called. And so this, this begs the question, am I one of the ones that God has called? Well, here's how you answer that question. When you hear the gospel, does your heart warm to the things of God? Are you, are you living for Jesus do you love the things that He loves? Is spiritual fruit being produced in your life? Do my words right now, do they cause you anger? Right? Did you write me off a couple minutes ago when I said some people in this room are perishing and some people are being saved and that there's only one way to God and that human works is completely inadequate? Did that cause you anger? No. I pray that by God's kindness, He might soften your heart so that He would call you right now. Are you wondering if you're called? Are you seeing Jesus? Are you realizing the futility of not trusting trusting in yourself? Are you realizing that the folly of that? If you are even hearing my voice right now, I believe you're being called. Or you have been called. Don't get wrapped up in Issues that really are beyond our ability as humans to consider. The sovereignty of God and salvation is a mysterious providence. And sometimes we want to judge God by getting outside of that and saying, well, God can't do that. Listen, friends, God can do whatever He wants. He is obligated to save no one. And so right now the question is for you, do you have ears to hear? Whosoever believes in Jesus shall be saved. Are you one of those that God is calling? Repent and believe and turn and trust in Jesus. It is that simple. Whosoever believes in Jesus will be saved. To him who has ears to hear will be saved. If you walk out of this room in internal disgust because you resist the beauty and the majesty of God's power and sovereignty and providence over all things, then you are identifying yourself as one of those who are perishing. But if your heart is softened by the bigness of God, then you are one of those that I believe God is calling even right now. So trust in Jesus. Don't trust in yourself. Let yourself be humbled. God didn't send Jesus so that you could be made much of. He sent Christ so that through Christ you could make much of Him. And those that are called respond in humility and repentance and faith. 
And now in verse 26, he gets, takes it from this 30,000 foot level and he brings it down and he makes it personal. I love this. He says in verse 26, for, okay, we're talking about the doctrines here, but now let's make it personal. Think about your own life. For consider your calling, brothers. In other words, consider how you became a Christian. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Listen now. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of the Lord. This brings us to our third point, and that is that the cross smashes human pride. The cross smashes human pride. He asks these Corinthians, now think about, he says to them, now think about now, we've just really, he says, if I haven't riled you up and made you angry enough right now, he says, now think about how you became a Christian. Just think about the humbling fact of you, how you became a Christian. Really, do you think that you became a Christian because you figured it out better than the next guy? Consider your calling, brothers. God in his kindness saved you if you're a Christian and you have nothing to owe for your salvation other than Christ and his mercy alone. I think this is, this is such an important truth for a church like Crosspoint to grab a hold of. We are arrogant, selfish, self-righteous, glory thieves. Every one of us. We are arrogant, self-righteous, glory thieves. And we continually need to remember how we became Christians so that we would continually be humbled and realize that it was Christ and all Christ from beginning to end that saved us and nothing else. Therefore, we should, Christians should be the humblest cats in the crew. Man, there should, arrogant Christian, th- those two words, that's an oxymoron. It shouldn't be able to go together. And this, this truth is particularly, I think, vital for us because let's be honest, the demographic that God in His providence has allowed this particular church to reach and to grow on to some degree is rich cute Christians. If they are truly Christians, if we are truly Christians, rich, cute Christians. And this world teaches us the opposite of what the biblical reality is. The world teaches us that money and good looks are advantages. But in reality, friends, I think for many of us, Money and good looks and intelligence are obstacles because for many of us it causes to trust in ourselves rather than Christ. And we don't see ourselves as in desperate need. And so we grew up rich and pretty and beautiful and smart. And so we trust in ourselves. I, I'm a sharp kid. Hope scholarship. Went to this school. Live in this neighborhood. Have these cars. Do this thing. Send my kids here. Can buy whatever I want. And when we grow up in that culture where the power of the gospel never decimates that pride, we live thinking that Christianity is a helpful add-on rather than our only hope. And so for many of you, you've got buy on your cute face and your trust fund. 
And I'm here to tell you that that may be your greatest obstacle. Don't trust in that thing. Don't trust in that thing. And some of you may be in this room and you're poor and ugly. And you thought that was an obstacle all your life. Well, I'm here to tell you that, listen to me now, I know that was funny, but this is serious. That may be God's grace on your life. We got 80 years here. Who cares if you're cute? What difference is it going to make if you're cute in eternity? Everybody's going to shine with the glory of Christ. Who cares if you're a little overweight? Who cares if your kid can't play ball? Who cares if you struggle to meet the payment? Who cares? In fact, that may be God's goodness to you because He's causing you to not trust in yourself. Listen, don't wallow in self-pity. God's seeming obstacle in your life may be the greatest blessing in your life because it causes you to trust in Jesus. And the rich and the cute, I remind you again, don't trust in those things. Don't trust in those things. Listen, this is, this is what Paul writes to Timothy. Let me read this. 1 Timothy chapter, chapter 6. This is what Paul says. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. 1 Timothy 6 verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. We are a rich church. And you may be saying, yeah, yeah, Brad's finally, he's finally talking about the rich folks. No, listen, just about everybody in this church is rich. If you have a check-in account and a refrigerator, you are in the top 6% of wealth in the world. If you have a refrigerator and a check-in account, you are in the top 6% of wealth in the world. So I think this, anybody not got a refrigerator? Uh, okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Your wife has a refrigerator. She just doesn't let you use it. <laughs> First Timothy six seventeen. As for the rich in this present age, that's us. Every person in this room, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, or good looks, or education, or human intelligence, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Not these 80 years. Oh, if you're rich and cute, trust in Jesus. If you're not, thank Jesus and trust in Jesus. The cross smashes human pride. And the last point We'll end with this. Let's go back to verse 30. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus. Because of Him, not because, not because of any other thing. Because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. The fourth and final point is that the cross is our only means of boasting and hope. The cross means our only boast and hope is in Jesus. He did all the saving, friends. It's because of Him they were Christians if you're a Christian. And if you're not a Christian, the way for you to become a Christian is through Him and Him alone and what He did on the cross for you, not through your relative morality. This, this verse speaks of the utter sufficiency of Christ. This would be 
verse 30 and 31 would be great verses to memorize. It says that He became for us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. It's, it's Christ. It's the utter sufficiency of Christ that makes us right before God. Realizing this again and again is good for your growth in Jesus. The gospel doesn't just save us. It grows us. It grounds us. It should cause us to worship Jesus more passionately. It should cause our hearts to burn within us and long to love Him more. And realizing this, even if you've been a Christian for 30 years, realizing this again and again makes us give off a fragrance, a fragrance of Christ that He uses to draw people to Himself. Well, if you believe what the Bible is utterly clear about, then in the eyes of this world, you are foolish. But in the eyes of God, it is the power and the wisdom of God Himself to save you. Not to make much of us, but to through Him making much of Jesus to enable us to make much of Him. That's the folly and the beauty of the cross. If you're a Christian, you need to be reminded of that all the time. And you need to continue to trust in that. If you're not a Christian, and it has become clear to you that you're not in these past minutes, trust in Jesus. Look to the one who calls you right now. Look to the one who is calling you right now as the only means of hope and way back to God. Turn from self-reliance and sin. The Bible calls that repentance. And trust in Jesus alone for your right standing with God. The Bible calls that faith. When you do that, you can be sure that you are His. And then connect with a church that talks about Jesus a lot and preaches from the Bible. And give your life to serving Him. And I believe that if you are truly sincere in your prayer and your faith and your trusting in Jesus, very shortly in your life, very soon, you will begin to see evidence of fruit in your life. In fact, the first fruit that you should even sense, even right now, is love for Jesus and His ways. So if you are not yet a Christian, you're being called right now. Turn and trust in Jesus. And He will make you His through the beautiful folly of the cross. Now let's pray before we respond in worship. <clears throat> Father, I am deeply convicted by my own self-righteousness as I have studied these things and now spoken these things. I confess that I have subconsciously trusted in my feeble intelligence and human wisdom and there are certainly vestiges of my life where I still do that. I still consider myself basically smarter than the next guy. And Lord, I am reminded again of 
your humility in the cross and yet your power and wisdom in the cross. Lord, you will share your glory with no other. And yet, uh, it is still my default position to be a glory thief. So, Lord, I repent of my glory thievery. And I pray that you would humble me and renew me to the joy of my salvation, to resting solely in Christ, to boasting in Him alone. Lord, I repent of trying to make good doctrine as a means by which uh, we will grow the church for my own acclaim. That is glory thievery. And it's my natural bent and default. Lord, I pray that you would tune my heart into satisfaction in God alone so that I would be satisfied with you and nothing else. I pray that you would renew that in me. And Lord, now Lord, I pray for my friends in this room. I know that um, they are very likely in similar spots. Humble us, Lord Jesus. Humble us. For my brother and sister Christians in this room, Lord, break through our pride and help us see the utter sufficiency of Jesus. And for my friends in this room who are not yet believers, God, you're calling them right now. I believe. And so, Lord, would you soften their heart? Would you do what they cannot do? Would you give them a new heart? Would you give them a new heart? Would you give them the faith that they need to respond to you in trust right now? Lord, your grace is far stronger than our will. So I am not asking you to bend the will of a self-sufficient person today. My trust does not rest in human will. My soul trust rests in your mercy to save. So Lord, would you do it right now? Would you take a dead heart and would you make it alive? And for that person, would you cause them to turn and trust in Jesus? Would you let their first breath of their new life be trust in Jesus? now, Lord, as we sing a song or two of response to you, I pray, God, that an aroma of Christ would rise from this room and that Jesus would be magnified and that we would be humbled, that you would be exalted and we would be satisfied. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.